The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You know, it, it may have just been a changing calculus where the value of what they were collecting had had decreased and the value of disruption now outweighed that or it's it's an indication that uh, the government values disruption uh, more today than, than they did uh, in the past and and I, I, I think there's probably uh, some elements of, of both because we've seen the US government in a number of contexts take more aggressive action to, to disrupt the the activities of you know the FSB and other state actors uh, and also ransomware groups. I'm Stephanie Pell, senior editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare podcast, May 19th, 2023. Over the past two weeks, the Department of Justice has issued two press releases announcing disruption efforts it has taken against malicious cyber actors. One operation involved the disruption of Russia's so-called snake malware network, and the other involved the indictment of a Russian national for ransomware attacks on critical infrastructure. To talk about these disruption efforts, I sat down with Alex Iftimi, partner at the law firm Morrison Forrester, and a former federal prosecutor in the National Security and Cyber Crimes Units in the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Eastern District of Virginia. We talked about the operational details and sophistication of some aspects of these disruption operations, the significance and relationship of these operations to other disruption efforts, and how these recent efforts fit into the broader picture of the DOJ's and the U.S. government's efforts to disrupt malicious cyber actors. It's the Lawfare Podcast, May 19th. Alex Iftimi on DOJ's recent cyber disruption efforts. On Tuesday, May 9th, the Department of Justice issued a press release announcing a court-authorized disruption of the Snake Malware Network, which it says was controlled by Russia's Federal Security Service. There's a lot to unpack just in the title of the press release. Alex, can you talk about what happened in this disruption operation and what a court-authorized disruption means? Stephanie, thank you. Glad to do that. Let let me touch briefly on what the disruption operation was. The FBI and international partners 
have been tracking uh, the Russian FSB's snake malware for nearly two decades and in recent years appeared to have developed the means to to track and to closely monitor the, the spread of this malware. Last week on May 9th, the Department of Justice announced the completion of what it called Operation Medusa, which was a multinational operation, as as these operations almost always are these days, which took proactive steps to disable this so-called snake malware. Snake malware is is essentially it's a backdoor that that the FSB had used to facilitate intelligence collection, and that allowed them to control computers, to monitor the activity on those computers, and and to steal information. Um, the FBI believes this tool was used for the FSB's in intelligence collection. The the operation itself essentially involved sending commands to permanently disable the malware. Uh, by overriding key components of the malware and, and essentially causing the malware to to shut itself off. And that was done without affecting any legitimate applications on the target computers. That's that's exactly right. And and what's notable about this operation is it went into the or or it sent commands to the systems of a victim so this wasn't an operation directed at command and control infrastructure used by the operators of this malware they essentially went out into um in this case eight computers in the united states that were the computers of victim organizations and issued commands that that would cause the the malware to shut itself down and exactly as you say, the way in which the operation was structured was was very carefully structured so that other information on those systems, which were the systems of unwitting victims, were uh, was not affected. And the FBI sought and got authorization to do this from a court, which makes the the court authorized aspect of of this that that's in the title of DOJ's press release that's what it means they got authorization to carry out um this operation from a court that's right they they essentially got a search warrant and that meant presenting a a search warrant application to a court that application has to be based on a probable cause affidavit by uh, a law enforcement officer and and the judge um, had to approve the warrant, and that warrant, of course, lays out the the scope of the operation and what the government is is authorized to do. So, written into that that search warrant were the limits that you just described, essentially, to make sure that the operation didn't affect other aspects of of those systems. And anytime you're dealing with an operation that requires access to computer systems in the United States, that's likely to be a, a considered a search and, and the government needs judicial authorization to do that. And so that, of course, is different than, than the way these operations might be carried out by the U.S. government uh, outside of the United States. So it appears from the search warrant affidavit that the U.S. government has been investigating SNAKE and the SNAKE-related malware tools for nearly 20 years. Can you talk about what the snake malware network was. 
Sure. And, and let me say what is perhaps most interesting about the operation and, and the court documents accompanying it is just the level of detail um, we got about the U.S.'s investigation of and, and monitoring over many years of, of the FSB's use of this, of this snake malware. And in some ways, these court documents uh, seem, seem to impart uh, just be designed to 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 highlight the level of of understanding over over the better part of a decade that the FBI has had of of this particular malware, and in essence to kind of poke the FSB in in the eye. It's uh, it's it's an interesting lens into the spy games between the United States and and Russia. But as as you say, the FBI and and the U.S. government more broadly had been tracking this snake malware for the better part of 20 years. And of course, I imagine this malware has changed quite a bit over those 20 years because of course, our you know digital lives have changed quite a bit over the last 20 years. And, and what was true in the early 2020s or early 2000s, I should say, is, is, is very different than, than how computers operate today. What we know is that the snake malware was operated by a unit within the FSB known as uh, Center 16. Center 16 is is primarily responsible for for FSB signals intelligence, and it's the signals intelligence arm of the FSB that that in turn sits alongside other intelligence agencies in Russia, like the SVR and uh, and and the GRU. The Unit in particular, the Center 16, it's been known by a variety of code names, uh, depending on on the security company you're talking to. It's it's been known as Venomous Bear, it's been known as Waterbug. Um, the FBI itself has referred to this FSB unit as Turla. And was there also a joint cyber advisory that came out with the unsealing of this? search warrant affidavit and the press release that that gave us some insight about snake malware and the snake snake malware network and and talked about its level of sophistication. Yes, that that's exactly right. So the US government alongside agencies from other 5 i partners essentially put out an, an incredibly detailed technical report of how this malware operates, and it describes the the snake implant in 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 great technical detail. Essentially, how it communicates, um, how the peer to peer network works, what the obfuscation and encryption mechanisms were within within this malware, and that of course is is very useful for um, for for security companies to be able to. To be able to understand the malware, to spot it in in other places, to uh, be able to look for similar malware that that's out there, and this joint cyber advisory described this this snake implant as one of the most sophisticated, if the, if not the most sophisticated, cyber espionage tool that the FSB had and had used for long term intelligence collection uh, for for sensitive targets. Do we know how the U.S. government attributed the snake malware at issue to the FSB? We we have some sense of it from from the search warrant uh, affidavit. The 
the affidavit goes through some detail of of what operations had taken place over the last few years related to to these Russian in, intelligence efforts and and it, it seems like the FBI has been monitoring this malware for some time. For example, the uh, affidavit notes that between 2015 and 2017, so we're talking, you know, as many as eight years ago, uh, the FBI was monitoring this malware on victim computers in the United States. Um, that they were aware that these computers were communicating with um, with other victim computers, including a foreign ministry of foreign affairs. The affidavit indicates that the FBI at the time was able to decrypt the communications between these these different instances of the snake malware, and that they were able to. Uh, see the information that these actors were were trying to exfiltrate from victim environments. They were able to see that some of the targets were endpoints associated with NATO. And they they also note in a very interesting turn of phrase that they were able to see that uh, the snake operators tried to exfiltrate a large amount of, of data that they believed to be NATO and UN documents. And, and that to me sure sounds like a, a false flag operation or some type of operation where law enforcement was, along with international partners, were aware of what th- these hackers were, were trying to go after and, and may have substituted or, or created information for them to take that, that wasn't actually uh, NATO or, or UN information. And the affidavit really goes into quite a bit of painstaking detail of of these various operations over the years, and and I think uh, it's it's pretty clear that over the course of that, they also learned a lot of information about the actors uh, behind this activity. The government knew, for example, that um, this malware was operated by. Uh, individuals at a at a specific FSB facility in Ryazan, Russia. We know that that they understood the working hours of these operators between approximately 7 a.m. and 8 p.m. Moscow time, and they were also able to attribute this malware because the the developers of of this malware had left in portions of code or uh, monikers or other taunts of of security researchers that essentially allowed the FBI when they saw this malware to attribute it to to particular individuals that that they may have identified via via other means and so it seems like over the years the the FBI has developed a, a pretty good understanding of exactly who was behind the keyboard in operating this this malware and at one point in the affidavit they even note that some of the FSB officers who were using this malware um, appeared to know how to use it better than than others and so they had a, a quite a granular understanding of 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 who was using the uh, the tool when. So how did this network operate and what kinds of things did it do? So it as I mentioned, it's a backdoor, right? The purpose of this is to create surreptitious access to a victim environment to be able to access those computers to see what uh, they're being used for to take information from them. It was a a, a a digital tool for espionage. What is interesting about this this tool is it it created a peer-to-peer network. Um, and that essentially means that 
that the different instances of this malware would talk to one another. So it wasn't just a structure where the malware beacons out to its its home base, um, its command and, and control infrastructure, but in fact, the different instances of the malware would talk to to one another. And that that is important because it's a mechanism for obfuscation. The commands and the theft of information essentially would be could be coming from another computer in a trusted network and so it's harder to to identify what is malicious activity it it clearly was a very sophisticated piece of malware it had mechanisms to uh, maintain persistence so even if you tried to get rid of it from an environment it would it would find ways to to stay there it was well disguised um, the traffic that was coming through looked like legitimate traffic and so a security team that would see this traffic uh, wouldn't necessarily know that that it is that it's something that uh, that was malicious and do we have a sense of the importance of snake malware in the FSB's espionage efforts. You know, it's 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 hard to it's hard to tell. The first point is it really seemed like this was a tool that that wasn't used that frequently. Only a few systems were infected in the United States. The FBI was aware of um, of eight of those systems. There were more systems in internationally. And one of the things we know is that that the United States and allied governments had been monitoring this tool for for many years, and and I expect as as a result of that uh, in that those prior investigations that the U.S. and other governments had taken steps to make sure that uh, the Russian government wasn't able to obtain valuable intelligence with with the tool. So I I I fully expect that the usefulness of this tool had been degraded as a result of prior government investigations but this was clearly a sophisticated tool it, it was one that the FSB was was still using and uh, and so certainly it's it's something that would have had some importance to to those espionage efforts and the false flag operation that you previously mentioned is illustrative of again the US government having insight, to what was going on and essentially perhaps conducting their own intelligence operation to gain further information about this network and this malware and and more generally how Russia conducts espionage activities? Is is that too much to conclude? I I don't think that's too much to conclude at all. Um, I would add to it that it would have given um, the U.S. government a lot of insight into what information Russia was after, what type of information it uh, it was seeking out and, and considered valuable. It also would have provided a source of intelligence in understanding who the actors are behind this, this activity, as, um, as we talked about uh, just a bit ago. So from the details provided in the press release and the search warrant affidavit that was unsealed, what was DOJ actually authorized to do And what kinds of actions does it appear that DOJ took pursuant to the search warrant? So I I think we've we've talked a a bit about this uh, at at the outset. Um, The the search warrant essentially authorized the government to issue commands to to these victim computers or the malware sitting on these victim computers. These commands 
were commands that would only be understood by the malware and and wouldn't be wouldn't have any other impact on other portions of of these systems and these commands caused the malware to to essentially disable itself by by wiping key portions of um, of the malware code the operation was directed just at these systems that were known to have this particular malware on them and the warrant was written in a way to ensure that DOJ wasn't authorized to search the whole computer to seize other portions of of information beyond beyond the very specific piece of malware sitting on the computer. In the search warrant context, your use of the term seize is interesting here. Rule 41, as we know, certainly gives the DOJ, when it meets the appropriate probable cause standard, the opportunity to seize evidence. How is seized being interpreted, used, and applied here? Well, you, you know, I, I think of it in, in the following way. And so, and, and I think it's an important distinction, right? When you typically think of, uh, of a warrant, you're thinking of something that allows, particularly in the electronic context, you think of something that allows the government to obtain copies of records, right? Like a copy of your email inbox or something like that. Here, what we're talking about is taking a step that, that permanently disables an application, or, or in this case, a piece of malware that that is that is sitting on on someone's computer, and so certainly this is malware that was that was unwanted by these victims. Although one could argue that's not for the government to to decide, right? And so part of the authority that is granted as as part of a warrant is also a seizure authority, which is for the government to essentially take something. And so you could think of this uh, analogizing it to if if law enforcement breaks into a a, a warehouse and and seizes uh, drug paraphernalia or um, or or drugs from a location, or if they go into a bank vault and and take a safety deposit box, those are those are seizures, and and the government is authorized to do those pursuant to to a search warrant if if they can show that whatever they're seizing is evidence of a crime, uh, is an in- instrumentality of a crime, and and certainly this kind of malware is is exactly that is it's an instrumentality that that the snake operators were using to to commit crimes in the United States. So you've talked a bit about the sophistication of the snake malware network and the malware itself, but it also seems from the search warrant affidavit that the DOJ's technical disruption operation was very sophisticated. Can you talk a bit about that? I, I can. I, I think what is what is interesting about it is the FBI had had reverse engineered this this malware they understood very clearly how it worked what its signatures were so they could identify it in in other networks and it understood the communications between these pieces of malware and the authentication protocols you know how it knew that that certain commands were coming from its handlers in great detail and and what the FBI was able to do was to impersonate essentially commands that would be coming from from the FSB handlers of this malware. And they issued commands to this malware that essentially 
looked like the commands that that would be coming from from the FSB, and and that caused the malware to to t- essentially take take steps to to self destruct. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over seventy percent of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/people today. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, 
doxing, and phishing scams, Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. You see in the search warrant affidavit a number of Greek mythology puns, uh, snake malware, Operation Medusa, Alex, given your time as an assistant United States attorney, are these kinds of things common or, you know, what what do we make of, of these analogies or use of Greek mythology puns? Um, I, I, I make of them the fact that uh, some, some agents who have spent uh, a great many years looking at this malware uh, were having some, some fun. It, it definitely seems like um, those who are investigating the this particular mal- malware like their their Greek, Greek mythology puns, and I will only add to your list um, the fact that the tools and commands that the that that the FBI and partner governments used to disable this malware they will call they were called Perseus, and and Perseus is of course the the demigod who beheaded Medusa. So there's no shortage of uh, uh, of, of of puns to go go through over the over the years. So the search warrant affidavit indicated that it it was important for the FBI to take coordinated action to disable the snake implants. What does such coordinated action mean from an operational perspective and why was it important uh, for the FBI to proceed in this way? Well, anytime you have one of these disruption operations, you want to make sure that that you don't let the um, the operators of of the malware or the botnet, in in some cases, be able to to reconstitute their operations by taking defensive action. And so, it's important to to time these disruption operations uh, to not give the bad guys time to, to to find ways to undo them or to prevent them once they see them in in one or two cases to to take other steps to protect the rest of their the rest of the malware. And we've seen these kinds of coordinated operations time and time again between the United States uh, and allied governments. And, and, and they really do involve close coordination between law enforcement and, and intelligence agencies to pick a particular time when, um, when these uh, commands are issued contemporaneously. Part of the challenge in, in conducting this kind of operation is the FBI can't just go around and do um, what it did in the United States in all countries because 
uh, they don't have authorization to to do that. Um, it may ruffle feathers of of other jurisdictions, and so you have law enforcement or intelligence organizations essentially in each of the countries that had victim computers taking coordinated action at the same time to disrupt this malware and not give the FSB an opportunity to you know to to reconstitute the 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 malware on on those systems. And the warrant actually requested a delay of service of up to 30 days after it was executed. Why was that necessary? Is is that part of the the coordinated action? Yes, that that's exactly that's exactly right. It's it's in part part of the coordinated action. It's in part part of the FBI didn't want providing notice of this operation to individuals to potentially get out before they conducted the operation that would give um, the FSB uh, or other parts of the Russian government an opportunity to to take defensive action and the procedures that exist for issuing a search warrant uh, allow for that kind of delay in in notice in in very specific cases and one of the cases where where they allow that is is in a situation where there's uh, a reason to believe that premature notice of of the execution of the warrant might allow for the destruction of of evidence or or that would allow the you know criminals to flee or or things like that and so that's what they used in this case to to delay notice. Although I will say they they said in their affidavit that they intended to provide notices as quickly as they could after after taking the action that they didn't expect they would need the the entire thirty days. And how would you compare this disruption operation to other disruption operations we've seen the DOJ publicize over the past eighteen months or two years? You know, in in some ways, it's it's quite similar to operations we have seen recently. Um, the one that I ana- analogize this to is a similar operation to go into the victim uh, into victim systems to disrupt malware that had been left behind by the Hafnium actors. Hafnium is a group that was attributed to. The Chinese state-sponsored activity that um, that exploited a vulnerability in Microsoft Exchange, when that vulnerability was about to be patched, the 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 hackers essentially went into as many computers that w- were vulnerable to to this exploit and left behind malware, so that after the patch was implemented, they could still they could still get into those systems and. The U.S. government, in in that case, the Department of Justice, um, again using a search warrant authority, just like we have here, went into the systems of, of victims to issue commands to that very specific malware that was deployed by the Hafnium actors, and to again disable that that malware. We've seen similar operations over really the better part of a decade um, to disrupt botnets using criminal authorities. What I would say is these operations get uh, more sophisticated each time the the government uh, undertakes them, and so it's clear that that they're 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 learning and becoming more ambitious in the operations that they undertake, but they're also following a a, a very set kind of framework for how to to conduct these these types of um, of operations. So you've touched upon this, 
but do you consider this disruption of the snake malware to be a, a progression of USG efforts to disrupt espionage or other malicious cyber operations? Is this, and I appreciate we don't, we don't know everything the U.S. government does in, in this arena, but would, would you categorize this as a just a real level above with respects to the sophistication that was required uh, to disrupt the snake malware network? Well, I think what I would what I would say about it is the the legal framework that they used to accomplish this is um, is 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 one they've used previously. I, I didn't really see anything in there that 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 surprised me or that looked different from what the government has done before. I think what's a really interesting aspect of of this operation is it's an example of the government disrupting a, a piece of malware that really for for at least 8 years if not longer since they've been tracking this for for 20 years they've had very good visibility into what the FSB has been doing with this malware and that has clearly been a source of intelligence for for the US government and for them to take disruptive action it really means burning uh, a a source that they've had for for a number of years and and so what i think it speaks to is the you know constant tension the government faces between essentially its collection efforts its goals to collect information and its its goals to disrupt this activity and and to prevent it from happening in in the future and we're seeing the US government in in this context lean into the the disruption uh in in taking action to finally kind of end this piece of malware and and you know it it may have just been a changing calculus where the value of what they were collecting had had decreased and the value of disruption now outweighed that, or it's it's an indication that uh, the government values disruption uh, more today than than they did uh, in the past, and and I I, I think there's probably uh, some elements of of both because we've seen the U.S. government in a number of contexts take more aggressive action to to disrupt the the activities of you know, the FSB and other state actors, uh, and also ransomware groups and criminal actors who who are doing harm to to the United States. So might there have been a number of interagency discussions to determine when it was time to di- to disrupt? I, I expect there would have been that uh, that kind of coordination. Um, and I expect that that conversation would have occurred not just, um, among U.S. government agencies, but also with international partners who who also clearly had equities in in this operation, because many of the victim systems would have been in their jurisdictions, not uh, not in the United States. So, what I'd like to do is talk to you about a second disruption operation that that occurred on May sixteenth. Uh, DOJ issued a press release indicating that a Russian national was charged with committing ransomware attacks against critical infrastructure, and it unsealed two indictments, one from the District of New Jersey and one from the District of Columbia. So what is the defendant Mikhail Pavlovich Mateev alleged to have done? 
So DOJ alleges that uh, Matviev uh, used three different ransomware variants uh, over the course of, of several years to attack law enforcement agencies like police departments in Passaic County, New Jersey, and the Metropolitan Police in, in Washington, D.C. They targeted a, a healthcare organization in New Jersey and other infrastructure, I should say critical infrastructure targets. And in in this particular case, Matviev was, was associated with the Lockbit ransomware, Babook ransomware, and, um, and, and Hive ransomware uh, as well. So this indictment tells us something about how ransomware actors such as the defendant are using multiple malware variants. Have we seen these variants surface in other disruption efforts before? Yes, we, we we definitely have. So uh, the the Hive ransomware group um, is one that the Department of Justice shut down uh, just earlier this year in in January, after having had access to the systems of that ransomware group for uh, for a number of months. And in fact, they had been surreptitiously getting decryption keys from the systems of the Hive group and passing them to to victims in in the United States and and we covered this operation on a on a prior podcast the Hive connection is is actually really notable here because the attorney general in in announcing the Hive disruption previewed in his remarks that our investigation into the criminal conduct of Hive members remains ongoing and that was a, a pretty clear indication that the Department of Justice was not just interested in the operational infrastructure of the Hive ransomware group, but also the individual members who were responsible for the activity. And here we're seeing one of those individuals who who has now been charged in, in two districts. I'll, I'll say one other thing that is really notable about this indictment is that it lays out what we have known for quite some time about these ransomware groups, which is that the ransomware ecosystem is is fluid and that the same individuals move around between ransomware groups. And as one group shuts down, um, the hackers move to the next group and uh, or, or set up a new name to operate under. And here, we've got this, this individual, Matviev, who, who had been associated with a, a number of of ransomware groups over the, the the years, so it's it it lays out in in the indictment how how some of these operators really move around to to continue to conduct these these criminal schemes. Some have described some of these efforts as as while good, that it is at times essentially playing a game of of whack a mole. Is that is that a fair description or critique? Well, it, it it is no doubt a game of of whack a mole, but there's there's value in uh, in staying at it because each time the government conducts a disruption operation, it increases the costs to those actors. It it means they have to rebuild. It means they have to set up new infrastructure. And and moreover, I think there is deterrent value to to some of this activity because even though in this case we we didn't see an arrest uh Matviev is uh is believed to be located in in Russia and certainly the Russian government is not going to be turning uh him over but this kind of indictment it it shows 
yet again, that engaging in these kinds of ransomware attacks is not cost-free and that the individuals behind these attacks can be identified by by name. And, and it means that these actors can't simply hide in the shadows uh, behind this activity. And even if they live in a jurisdiction where U.S. law enforcement can't get to them, they'll be looking over their shoulder and they'll be limited in where they can travel for, for the rest of their lives. And, and, and so at the margins, these kinds of operations can do quite a bit to combat this, this activity and, um, and, and to make it harder for these actors to recruit and, and to conduct their attacks. So I would note that the Treasury Department I guess, in conjunction with this indictment, has sanctioned Matveyev. What are we to make of that? And are there any complications that arise, perhaps for victims, because of that sanction activity? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll say first that the, that the Treasury Department has been very active in, in this space um, and has been using its sanctions authorities to go after infrastructure that these actors use, um, whether it's mixing services that that they use to try to obfuscate their activity or cryptocurrency exchanges where they try to convert their Bitcoin or, or other cryptocurrency ransom payments into fiat currency. And, and they have um, gone after some of the some of the individuals behind these these ransomware uh, attacks as, as well. One of the one of the challenges with these operations is, of course, that when when one of these actors is is sanctioned, it it also creates compliance issues for for victims. It it means those victims now have to worry about a potential sanctions violation if they make a, a payment to a a group that Matviev or or another sanctioned actor is is affiliated with, and and of course, while law enforcement with the benefit of uh, of its resources and and law enforcement tools and and with the benefit of significant time to investigate these activities can associate a particular attack to a particular individual when victims are faced with the urgent response that is often involved in in responding to these ransomware attacks they may not have the benefit of all of that information to to be able to very carefully attribute whether you know their attack and the person behind the keyboard who they're communicating with happens to be Matviev or or another sanctioned actor and so it it creates compliance challenges and 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 so that's another aspect of uh, of these disruption operations that that that's notable and 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 that the government I'm sure is thinking through as well. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners today? You, you know, it, it is it's interesting to see the pace of of the government's operations in in this space. Um, in just the last two weeks, we've we've now seen you know a further disruption operation related to. The ransomware um, last week was was uh, as we talked about at length the, the disruption of the snake malware. It's clear mm-hmm. that the focus that that the department has put on on disrupting this kind of malicious cyber activity is is paying off in in the amount of uh, of disruptions they've been able to to string together in in recent weeks and months. And I expect we'll continue to see 
these kinds of operations in um, in in other contexts. So look forward to uh, to, to doing another podcast on uh, on new developments soon. Absolutely, look forward to having you back. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Stephanie. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.